welcome back. This is Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drew, and this week uh, we've got a whole lot of ground to cover. So for the next two episodes, I had the amazing fortune to get together with arguably one of the most interesting and genuine people in American Single Malt Whiskey today, Mr. Johnny Jeffrey from Bentley Heritage Estate Distillery in Minden, Nevada. And if my introduction should in any way sound like I have some sort of a personal bias, well, that would, that would be a pretty accurate statement. <laughs> so if you've listened to any of the episodes prior to this one, uh, you probably know that I was previously the maltster at an estate distillery. What I haven't really talked about, though, is which distillery that was. Well, now that I have Johnny on the show, it's pretty easy to talk about that a little bit more. So, up until this past summer, I worked with Johnny at Bentley Heritage in Minden, Nevada. And it was an absolutely amazing, life-changing, just wonderful experience that I'm always going to consider to be one of the greatest personal and professional growth periods of my life. And I'll tell you what, the execution of Chris and Camille Bentley's vision of that brand is truly inspired and honestly just a testament to what the future of the American single malt whiskey tradition could hold. So needless to say, I was admittedly a little nervous to even ask Johnny to be on the show in the first place. But once I knew that we were going to get together, man, I was just really excited to help tell the Bentley story and his story in a little bit more detail because it's important, and, and what they're doing there is really, honestly, just nothing short of transformational in so many different ways. But here's the thing. They don't have any whiskey anywhere out there on the market yet, and they won't for at least a few more years. But anyway, we'll jump into that in uh, some more detail with Johnny later. First off, though, I need to take care of some listener correspondence and send out a huge thank you to the latest Single Malt Matters Patreon patron, Mr. Jesse Wilson from New Zealand. And if you follow any other whiskey podcasts or YouTube channels, you probably have heard of Jesse and you know him as the founder of Stillet and Chasers of the Craft. I'll throw some links to his social platforms up on the episode show notes, but above and beyond just honestly being a super smart and and a really cool and nice guy, I would characterize him as probably the world's foremost authority and spokesperson for home distilling, which is something that we can't legally do here in the United States. And we're not alone. There are a lot of countries uh, where home distilling is illegal. So anyway, again, first and foremost, Jesse, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, man. Now, I am not advocating for home distilling. And You know, I knew before I even made that statement that I was likely going to get a bunch of uh, people uh, getting a hold of me and and making arguments like, hey, well, no, it's legal as long as you're just distilling it for personal use and you aren't going to be selling it. I've heard that a bunch. But here's the thing. That's wrong. And this is just one of those irrefutable black and white kind of deals. Home distilling of beverage alcohol is a federal offense in the United States. You can't do it. It's illegal, period. That said, (laughs) there are some countries wherein home distilling is in fact legal. And given that I have listeners in some of those countries, the next order of business is to talk about a couple of questions that rolled in uh, from one of those countries. And just for some quick context, I actually appeared on a couple live stream episodes uh, with Jesse Wilson on his YouTube channel. And one of the things we talked about was malting at home. 
And a few days ago, one of my listeners who goes by the name of Stringbean, <laughs> and I, I don't know why, but when I saw that his name is Stringbean, I just got this picture in my head of a, of a fat dude on a motorcycle wearing a cape. Anyway, Stringbean had some really good questions about malting at home for single malt whiskey. And real quick, I just wanted to address them for two reasons. First of all, because I know that I do have listeners in countries that allow home distilling and the trend of malting at home is becoming more popular. And second, I love the question because it's an awesome indicator of something that I've been talking about a lot on the podcast, and that has to do with flavor starting with the grain and carrying through into the finished spirit. So even if you aren't really interested in malting at home, just stick with me here for a minute. This is interesting. String Bean says, Hey Matt, I've been playing with malting some barley in two kilogram batches, steeping in buckets with heaps of holes in the bottom, drying and kilning in a gas-fired smoker, and computer fans for airflow, and homemade screen tumblers that rotate with the malt inside with some degree of success. I heard you on a podcast on Chasers of the Craft. You mentioned using green malt and just mashing it up and cold smoking it with a smoking gun. I love it. A couple of questions for you. Uh, first question, how do you get rid of the grassy flavors in the resulting whiskey? Second question, how much do you need to grind the green malt before mashing it? I've tried it in a Corona mill and it turns into a gooey doughy mess even when it's frozen. So first off, I love that this dude has built his own home malting system. That is so cool. I'm picturing his setup here, and I have to say that I'm really impressed with the level of ingenuity that he's applied to his hobby. So first off, in terms of the grassy flavors, I want to point out that this right here is a perfect example of flavor making a huge difference before you even mash it and start the fermentation process. So to start off, green malt is just another way of describing barley that has been malted, but it's not kilned. So it's still got between 35 and 40% moisture content and is still very actively modifying or germinating. Now, as far as why you would want to potentially use green malt in a whiskey mash, this has everything to do with getting the maximum enzyme package from that malt and absolutely nothing to do with anything else, especially flavor. So this would be great if you were using it as a component of say a four grain bourbon or maybe a single malt that consists of higher colored malts that have all kinds of really cool flavor components that you're looking for, but none of the enzyme. You need to bridge that gap and if you want to do it with grain rather than exogenous enzymes, green malt is your best bet. Uh, now again, this was my bad since I didn't qualify that statement by saying I wouldn't use green malt as the sole component of a mash. Now as far as his second question about milling green malt goes, there are a couple of red flags here indicating some things that you could play around with. First of all, if it's green and the moisture content is really high, you honestly don't have to mill it very much. You just have to make it a little bit easier uh, for that grain to break apart when you start cooking it. And that doesn't really take much since the moisture content is already so high. But if it's super like gooey, that tells me that you're either under modified, which means your beta glucans are just way too high, or that maybe your moisture content is a little too high going into milling. And beta glucans, if you remember from one of my earlier episodes, are basically the protein matrices responsible for making oatmeal like really gooey and sticky. So that would be the first thing I would look at. And remember, your enzyme package is going to increase as your beta-glucans decrease. So since you're basically using green malt for its enzyme anyway, 
Don't worry so much about over-modifying your malt a little. Let those acrospires grow to the full length of the barley kernels or maybe even a little bit longer. Also, get online and Google the term Chapin test, C-H-A-P-O-N. And the Chapin test is a really easy hydration test that you can do in your kitchen with a loose leaf tea ball, some boiling water, a timer, and a razor blade. And that will tell you how well you're hydrating your grain in the first steeps and air rests before you even make the transition into germination. Now, this is also super important because any sections of that barley that don't get hydrated aren't going to malt. And if that happens, your acrospire length doesn't even matter because you can't use that as a true indicator of full modification. And those unhydrated barley bits are just going to be chock full of beta glucans. So thank you for sending in the questions, String Bean, and I hope that helps. All right, so back to today's guest. The estate designation for distilleries in the United States is really rare and pretty unique. And essentially what that means is that every aspect of the process from the seed hitting the dirt to the final packaging for distribution, however many years later, happens on the distillery's property. And it's one of the coolest approaches to American single malt production in that it all but guarantees a unique spirit, offering the consumer a glimpse into the land that spirit was born of. Bentley Heritage is one such distillery and one of the very few that exists. And so today I am so happy and grateful and thankful and terrified to have (laughs) (laughs) Johnny Jeffrey talking with me here on the podcast. Johnny, thank you so much for your time uh, and welcome. Thanks, man. So first off, I want to leave COVID out of the whole thing. I don't want to talk about COVID. Uh, Everybody knows everything's been said a million times before and I can edit this out. But if we are going to say anything about COVID, one of the things specific to the craft beverage and craft distilling space, uh, what learnings can we take from this moment in time and apply them in the future? So I don't want to talk about the impacts of COVID right now. I want to talk about learnings and applied knowledge later. Is there anything that comes to mind in terms of your practices and, and, and how you're doing things and how you've responded to it that is going to be relevant moving forward? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess the way I would answer that is I, I don't think there are going to be a lot of lessons to take away from this that are process and production side, right? We, you know, we're going to go back to making what we make. Maybe somebody is, maybe some people are going to have some hand sanitizer in their production lineup going forward. But you know, I think that the things that we're going to have to take away from this as an industry uh, are going to involve, you know, ramping up what we already talk about um, from the rising tides perspective, right? We're, a, we're an industry that supports one another. You know, we're not super cutthroat for the most part. We might be trying to get on the same shelves, but usually when we're trying to get on the same shelves, we're not trying to push each other out to get there. And I, I think what we're going to need to do coming out of this is double down on community support. Uh, double down on doing what we can do to, you know, to support our sister businesses. Because the reason we're that type of industry is because we raise awareness about ourselves by raising awareness about other businesses in our industry that are our scale. And it's the only way that distributors hear us. And it's the only way that consumers hear us. And if, if we're not there to, to help, you know, hold everybody up, uh, we'll see a huge collapse and it'll just be heartbreaking and disastrous. And I don't want it to happen. I don't want to come to a trade show and be missing half the faces. So let's 
back up and let's talk about, so as I already introduced you, uh, you are the master distiller in sort of, I, I would say in terms of a production product portfolio mastermind perspective, sort of um, the guy that has essentially shaped the Bentley brand. Let's back up further than that, because I know that your path did not start anywhere near distilling. <laughs> so, so let's, let's go back to the beginning, kind of take me through the process in where you started and the steps that led you into thinking like, wow, this distilling thing is pretty cool. I want to do that. Oh uh, yeah. So man, I, you know, I don't know how far back to go, but I, I guess what I would think of as a great kind of genesis point for how I, for how I wandered down this path is that, you know, I grew up in Chicago and, um, and in the city, you know, surrounded by artists and musicians. I was a sound engineer. I worked in studios. I was a musician. Um, my friends were artists and poets and other musicians, all the things, right? That whole thing, that whole stuff, <laughs> that world of creative outlet, right? And, you know, I was, I was living in that and was immersed in it and was realizing that although, you know, I love all of those things, at that point in my life, at least, it was, it was not going to be my livelihood. It was not going to be my life. And I wanted to have a family. And so I was looking around for what else the thing was going to be. And weirdly, it kind of um, turned out to be a fascination with the scientific method that I kind of didn't know I had, that I found because I was at, you know, Columbia College one semester away from a sound engineering degree working in a recording studio and was taking a class about quantum physics and was like way more interested in it than anyone else in the class or in any of my other classes. And you know, it led me down this path that, you know, is long and winding, but that fascination with the science side of creative exploration stuck with me. And after about a decade of, you know, working in physical therapy offices and like, you know, I got a degree in exercise physiology, you know, what, what that did for me was it kind of took, you know, this creative artistic side and this scientific side and, it, and, you know, both of them had had some time to play. And as I was, you know, reading Michael Pollan books and, and working with people on diet, I was finding this fascination with flavor and food science and, you know, agronomics and, you know, the nutritive value of different growing environments and all of that, which sort of stumbled me into, you know, food chemistry as like a casual interest. And a casual interest for me is reading everything I can get my hands on perpetually and constantly for months, if not years, but not necessarily thinking that I'm going to do anything with it other than explore it, right, and talk about it endlessly. And when I met my wife, Dorota, uh, we traveled a couple times to Poland to see her family, and the part, the eastern part of Poland where she's from is almost completely undeveloped agriculturally. Uh, they've never had industrial farming. They've never had pesticide and herbicide use on the land for hundreds of miles in this region because historically it was so poor. And, you know, the Germans and Russians took all the farming equipment and, you know, so they were like 18th century farmers in some ways. Her dad was cutting grass with a hand scythe. And everywhere we went to every family house that we went into, 
you'd look out like every every farmhouse had some grain you know it was very old school farming so they supplied themselves with as much food as they could they bought food from the farmers in the region at markets where they all sold food to each other uh, they sold some for profit and once they maxed out what they could consume or sell they had a million ways of preserving things and one of the ways of preserving things was, you know, I mean, they do the jams and the pie and the da 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 and all the things that, you know, we don't, we're, we're starting to do again, but almost like a hobby, but they were doing it because historically that's the way they live. Um, they were making wine. They were distilling some of the fruit that came off the trees. Everybody had these recipes, you know, her, her uncle had 40 different fruit wines and spirits sitting in a cabinet and we'd walk into a house and, you know, the, the women would run in the kitchen and pull out all the meat that they had preserved and the bread that they had baked and the men would run in the other room and grab a bunch of bottles of stuff that they had made. And it was never, ever commercial spirits or wine. It was always a thing that they made from their land. And like from that, there was this moment where we were sitting there and, and looking at this and, you know, she kind of took it for granted, but was seeing it through my eyes. I, it took me like there was no way I wasn't going to find a way to be involved in something like that. And when I got back, when we got back from one of those trips, we started making what are called nalevka. And nalevka are, are like fruit macerated liqueurs uh, that they make and spirit that they make from the fruit. And they were just disgusting. And we were following their recipes. But we were buying fruit at the grocery store and using Everclear, right? Because that's what we could do. And amusingly, I went to a farmer's market and was buying fruit at the farmer's market and I had a bunch of bottles in the car and there was a guy who's a really well-known like TV chef, you know, like food star. And I went running to the car and brought him a couple bottles and, you know, was all excited and like, you know, and I gave him the bottles and he was like, yeah, meh, tastes like commercial fruit and, and Everclear. Like, do you, do you make your own spirit? Do you ferment your own wine? Do you, you know, and I was like, shit, like I am actually gonna like crawl down this infinite rabbit hole and you know the the short end to that long saga is um you know dr chris berglund at michigan state university had what was called the artisan distilled spirits program uh at michigan state and he was in the chemical engineering department and it wasn't doing much so i started emailing him i started pestering him and one day i showed up in the brewery where he had his stills installed and kind of spent the day wandering around and then finally saw him and like walked up to him and was like, Hey, I'm the guy that emails you like every week. And the way he told it when I got there, the way he would tell people is I bugged him until it was more annoying to let me continue bugging him than it was to put me in a program. It's <laughs> <laughs> the way to do it, man. Yeah, man. And so, you know, the, the program was, I, took a bunch of organic chemistry, microbiology, moved to Michigan and walked in and, and was like, cool, what's the program? And he was like, well, I have one class. I have a lab and some stills that don't do anything. So you should run the lab. Uh, here's some books, learn how to distill. Uh, here's some people you can call. And uh, I got to go. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> and break. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, there were some other students. There were chemical engineers and microbiology students and I was food chemistry and you know we pieced it together and we built a program you know we we taught classes we hired people we did R&D you know we we did like startup 
exploratory batches for companies like Headframe and, and Santa Fe Spirits and uh, distilleries all over Michigan. And, you know, they'd come in and we'd do their first batch and we'd distill it and send them home with some bottles. And, and what, when did you start that program? Uh, 2008, I moved to Michigan. Okay. You know, that, so that was, you know, I, I did some distilling workshops, but that was really, you know, I sold my family up the river with that one, right? Like I was going to graduate school on a research assistantship and moving my wife and two kids to rural Michigan. Like, I promise this is going to work out. We're going to go in, way into debt. Um, I'm going to be gone 80 hours a week for three years. <laughs> but I think it's going to be okay. Just, just trust me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> trust me more than I trust myself. <laughs> and so, so what was your, what was your transition out of that program into professional uh, distilling? So even while I was there, right, we were doing contract manufacturing, we were doing R and D, we were doing facility design and all of that stuff I was learning as we did it. And some of what I did there was consulting work too. So you know, before, especially I think in the last year of graduate school, when I was sort of figuring out, you know, there, there was definitely a part of me that was drawn to the academic stuff and wanted to stick around the university and wanted to have the diversity of work where, you know, whoever was coming in with a new project, you know, whether it was like, you know, saltwater oceanfront oats that a guy wanted to make into a vodka to, you know, whatever, just piecing the equipment together to make um, whatever somebody needed to make. Uh, yeah, the academic thing is tough. Like you have to have a particular, I think, mentality and temperament to be able to deal with the way, the pace and, uh, you know, the way that, the way that people operate in that environment is really hard for someone who wants to get stuff done quickly and uh, bureaucracy at its finest. Yeah. You know, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a crank turner, you know, like once, you know, I'm the dog with the sock guy. Once you tell me a thing is, has to get done, I'm going to go get it done unless there are 80 people standing in front of me trying to shoot it in the foot. And I don't, I don't give up easily, but I definitely, I definitely see and acknowledge futility when I confront it. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot of that there where like, you know, we had, when I left, we had a budget written up for like a truly unbelievable productive program with a bunch of employees. You know, we had contract manufacturing lined up and it just, you know, because of the way it was set up and because of the university, it wasn't going to pan out. And I could see that. And so one of the, you know, one of the companies that had contracted with us for contract manufacturing, for R&D, for, you know, troubleshooting, um, made me an offer. So the offer was basically, you know, come to Wisconsin, live here for a couple of years, build a distillery, stay if you want. And I didn't, but I did go build the distillery and I did go train the staff and the company ultimately wasn't successful, but, you know, I did what I said I was going to do. <laughs> I was really proud of the work there. You know, the, the, the brand still exists and, um, you know, under new ownership and the equipment is still making those brands and the products that we made there were awesome. And, you know, it, it was a great start because it was building a big distillery, you know, taking a couple existing products that needed some work and tweaking them, um, creating some new products, getting all of that running, 
training a staff, getting the staff comfortable with the equipment and then with running it. And then, you know, slowly taking steps back and saying like, so how, how, how do I hand this off now? And how do I transition out? Because that was always in the cards and, you know, like walking away from that was work I was proud of. It was a cool, it was a cool transition because it was like exactly the opposite. It was exactly the cure for the things I was frustrated with. Right. It was like, there's a close agricultural connection here. There's a product that is being made and we are in direct communication with these farmers. There's bringing agriculture back to an area where agriculture had stopped. There's building a facility. There's, you know, putting a staff in the position of feeling empowered and in control of an operation. And like all those things were super rewarding. And that's kind of what that was. And that's, that's, it came out of the, the fact that Dr. Berglund was so easy and fluid and flexible with what we were going to do that, you know, when these two guys strolled in with like a bottle of white whiskey that was all cloudy and handed it to me, like they literally like walk, it was like they walked in off the street, right? And they handed it to me and we're like, why is it like this? And what do we do? You know, it's like, well, we throw it in the GC and then we do a bunch of test trials and we figure out what's flocculating out and we do this and we do that and we hand you back the production methodology. And, you know, I had actually gone to a couple of the distilleries that they were contracting with and, you know, handed them SOPs and worked through what it should, how it should be made. Super cool. You're such a slacker, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, man, it, for me, it's always, it's always got to be interesting and fun though and engaging, right? Like I have to be following something. I, it's almost like, I feel like I am eternally on the quest for what is like the cloth on some problems coattails that just slipped through the doorway and I'm chasing it. And like, as long as I'm chasing something, I'm happy. And it's as a general rule there, it was problems. And I like, even now when people ask me like, how, what is the path to becoming a head distiller? And my answer is my path was making every single imaginable mistake. Like I screwed everything up because I had no idea what I was doing. And I solved every stupid problem every time I made it. And like having the opportunity to make those mistakes without having to, without like bucketing a business is the reason that I know how to solve some, a lot of problems. <laughs> well, and I mean, realistically, they're probably the same problems that like everybody makes along everybody. their path, you yeah. know? Because a lot of it's kind of mistakes. Because a lot of it's probably founded on common sense, and what you realize is that common sense doesn't necessarily always pan out. Totally. No, I mean, and and that's the thing, right? Is like, especially back then, man. Especially in like two thousand eight, nine, and ten. Everybody, like people, were starting up and like had no idea how you cook grain to make whiskey. And I would get calls that were like, "Hey, what book should I read about how to?" what grain should I use to make bourbon? You know, and it was like, man, really? We're there? What grain should I use to make bourbon? Do you have a license? Yeah, yeah, man. But like, we have a 50 gallon still in a little warehouse corner. It's like, all right, so you don't actually have the time or the ability to make mistakes, right? Like you have to start and do it right. And as right as I can help you do it, because I'm still making mistakes. It's like, here's, here's what we've got to work with. Wow. And I'm in a university. So like, I'm going to give you everything I've got because I'm not 
starting a business. I'm not in a proprietary setting. I'm like screwing around in a brewery with a laboratory and a couple of stills trying to figure out how to do it. So if I give it to you and you make a couple further mistakes and you call me and tell me what you figured out, like maybe together we can get there, you know? <laughs> so, so you jump from Michigan to Wisconsin, yeah. you, uh, you, you tie the ribbon on Wisconsin and then that springboards you into... So again, like wrapping up the project in Madison, I was starting to do some consulting because I knew, you know, I was going to be on my way out. And, you know, I had two or three consulting jobs and uh, I had talked to Colin Keegan of Santa Fe Spirits because his first batches of whiskey that ever got distilled were at Michigan State. He came and spent a week with us. You know, we did some single malt, bottled it up and he took it home. And we tried to make it legal because we didn't actually know what we could do and what we couldn't. <laughs> but, you know, I called him and he was really struggling. And I knew that what I was going to end up doing was a handful of things to bridge the gap until I figured out what on earth to do next. And I, I went and visited him and, and, you know, we had a long chat about what he was looking for. And it was clearly like he had had a lot of turnover he was struggling with standardizing the products. There are a few pretty bummer distillers in the country that make their way around, kind of, they just show up, do what they do and bug out. Uh, so he had had a couple of those. And he's like, he's been around since 2010 and was still struggling in 2014 just to standardize production, right? So, so we talked about committing part-time to do some work there and get that up and running again and do what I could to train people. I had in, in like November 2013, standing beside the 2,500 liter Carl pot still, I got a call from a headhunter that was like, hey, would you want to like do some work on a little distillery in Nevada? It's like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'll, I'll talk to whomever. Um, <laughs> and that was Bentley. So a little distillery in Nevada. <laughs> I got a little distillery in the desert. <laughs> oh man if only you knew then oh man yeah so right obviously we'll get there but yeah yeah um but i you know i packed everything everything <laughs> this is good i packed everything we owned in a four by eight trailer i drove my kids <laughs> and my wife from madison to chicago dropped them off at the o'hare airport to fly to poland to stay with dorota's family for i think two months then I drove to Santa Fe, signed consulting contracts in uh, gas station cafes on the way there and like took pictures of them and sent them off because I didn't have any contracts or any, you know, I just knew I needed to go and, you know, moved into a little house, uh, started working at Santa Fe Spirits, started working on Bentley, started working on a couple other consulting contracts and like, you know, spent two and a half years there. I can, you know, Santa Fe Spirits was very much like, getting the whiskey blend standardized with a blending methodology that could be communicated, uh, deciphering a bunch of crazy ass, you know, notes from previous distillers on how the gin was being made and getting a production methodology standardized, you know, getting some inventory built up and then starting to pull people in and train and hire up and, and get production going and get it even keel and then working with Colin on the business on the business side and forecasting and doing a lot of the, you know, working with him just on some of the business side stuff that he needed help structuring and, you know, flying to Minden, Nevada and figuring out what this was going to be. 
<laughs> driving up to, to Denver to see Rob Masters because we were working together. So we would like drive and meet halfway between Santa Fe and Denver, um, sit in restaurants and work for a day and then head home. Wow. Yeah. Man. So it's like, if I just, you're explaining this whole thing and I've got this image in my head of like, if this was a movie, the soundtrack would just be somebody whistling. <laughs> right. And you'd be like wearing a leather jacket and your hair would just be greasy. And you'd be like, Hey, <laughs> well, like, you know, I, I mean, when it comes to like work, right. When it comes to making whiskey, I have a very long arc on my plan, right? Like I know where it's going to end up. I have all, like, even if all of the details aren't worked out, I know all of the lanes I'm driving in, right? And I have like all of the things that I do to plan it. In my life, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it is not that. <laughs> so like for real the way we moved was like oh we're leaving in a month so we moved into we moved out of an apartment into like a hotel i drove most of our stuff to the family farm in southern indiana and stuck it in a barn drove back and we lived out of this hotel room for a month because we knew we were leaving and everybody was game but you know it wasn't clear what we were doing which might be the t-shirt that I should be wearing. <laughs> I'm not clear what I'm doing. So talk about, uh, so obviously there was a transition there uh, into Nevada and Bentley and you took on more responsibility and, and, and you became more of a driving force there. Kind of talk about that, how that project evolved and what it has evolved into. Where, where did the vision start? And how did it evolve and what is it now? Yeah. So, you know, when it started, it was a rendering by a design architect of a facility inside of a 19th century flour mill. And that is the single malt side, um, which we'll get to. And amazingly, where that piece of it ended up is almost exactly what we looked at early on in those renderings. Like it was visually coherent almost from the beginning. The Forsyth stills were ordered. Um, none of the other equipment was, but Forsyth was on like a three-year trajectory to completion of a still. So, you know, down payment was made. That was pretty set. Other than that, everything was like up in the air, right? And, and this is early 2014, so... You know, Westland is starting, like the front wheels of Westland whiskey have left the runway. But in 2014, it's still a question of like, is this a thing? You know, and, and some of the other single malt producers are, are starting to sound like they believe that something cool is going to happen. <laughs> right? Um, they, they weren't, you know, like the conversations before that everyone was a little hesitant, right? To, to say like, oh yeah, when single malt happens in this country. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, Bentley was a single malt distillery that we were worried was gonna be a very expensive hobby. And, and, and we were having conversations about what else do we need to do to, to have a, a strong business here? What else can we add to this? 
and you know five conversations in and it was like oh okay so we're building a gin and bourbon distillery and we're going to do rye and i would say by mid 2014 it was clear that we were not only going to grow all the grain mill it mix it have a malt house you know grow botanicals for gins if we could have multiple distilleries be building climate controlled rick houses it, you know it took probably 6 7 months to get all of our brains wrapped around that and I can't, wow. you know, Rob Masters and I probably spent more time talking to each other and finding ways to sit in front of each other so we could like look in each other's eyes to try to like gauge whether either of us was actively losing our minds as we planned <laughs> this. Yeah. But he and I worked our way through that and created this kind of like you know, eagle's eye view of what this was going to become with obviously Chris and Camille Bentley, who at every point we would ask a question like, well, if you're doing single malt, you have to malt it. Are we sending it out to contract it? I can help you. We can help you do that. Or are we building a malt house? And, you know, a week would go by and they'd come back and say, well, like, you know, what's a malt house really? And what's the scale of it? And Rob and I would like look at each other and, and call anyone that we knew that could help us answer that. Todd Leopold helped us a ton especially at the beginning, he was building his malt house and talk about generous with information. That guy brought us in for tours, talked to us about floor space. And, and, you know, and so we'd come back and say, well, for clarity, all of this information comes from our contacts because we're not maltsters, but it looks like you could do it in a building this big. And they were like, oh, that, of course we're going to do it. So we'd like <laughs> throw that in the plan, you know. So talk about the original, I want to touch on the malting uh, side of it and the malt house. Because I know, uh, again, going back to what I said at the top of the show, that's where you and I met each other. Uh, yeah. I was your monster. And yeah. I remember very early on, the, ver the first time I, I ever went over to the distillery complex, and I remember sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, being told, oh, yeah, that's the malt house right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Uh, so, so talk about the scale of the malt house and how that evolved. And at what point did you realize like, oh yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about it. So uh, yeah, there was a, there was a room in one of the distilleries that was going to be the floor malting facility or, or floor malting with a couple tiny auto malters. And, you know, essentially we got to this point where one, we were realizing we needed more room in that building anyway. And taking a step back to what that campus is, you know, it's two 19th century, built, 19th, 20th century buildings, you know, that go back to an era where all there was was agriculture, cattle, and a rail spur. There were no towns and cities, really, right? And dirt roads. And this was an agricultural center where grain was being collected, dairy was being collected, you know, butter was, be, you know, this is like, it's a central location for the agricultural roots of the region. And the Bentleys wanted that connection maintained. So we weren't going to like tear down one of these buildings and build a building that was three times larger because that's what the production demanded. We were going to be as gentle with the footprint as we could, maintain the buildings as much as we could, maintain the same footprints and if we couldn't fit all of production or if the scope that we were you know exploring as we built this thing out grew beyond the bounds of that building we would build another building 
and uh, there were two rooms that were had pins in them in the model as the floor and auto malting area, and like you know what were they like two thousand square feet maybe, so we were gonna yeah. have if that right so we were gonna have a little kind of like novelty floor pile and a couple little auto malters and and the question became okay so if if the stills are at this scope and we're cooking this much clearly this room doesn't do it are we doing this for novelty's sake or are we truly becoming an operation that handles every step and lots of conversations later and again the answer was we are an operation that does every step and you know not to put too fine a point on it but the the amount of mileage we would have to put on that grain to get a contract malted and bring it back was not in keeping with our environmental goals, right? The carbon footprint of trucking to wherever, Montana, California, whoever would do it and back for all of those batches all the time was just, you know, kind of dumb. So the initial intent was not to become an estate distillery, but the further down the rabbit hole you got, you realized it made the most sense to do that, especially yeah. given that the Bentley footprint in the Carson Valley consists of also Bentley Ranch, where, yeah. I mean, talk about the acreage there, farming, yeah. the agricultural side of it as well. So, you know, early on, early on, it was clear that the grain was going to be grown on Bentley Ranch. And, you know, Matt McKinney was one of the first conversations I had uh, with Bentley staff after being hired. And it was, what can you grow there? And the answer was, I don't know. What can we grow here? You know, because we're <laughs> 4,800 feet of elevation. Um, you know, we're a mountain valley, so there's plenty of snow melt. There's water for irrigation. Uh, but, you know, 15% humidity average, uh, I think six or seven inches of rain per year. So, you know, that's great for some grains and not great for others. Uh, and the only, the only sort of caveat to the understanding that we were going to be a state, or at the time that they, right, I was still a consultant, were going to be a state was if the grain quality wasn't, you know, if they weren't going to be able to grow good quality grain. Because, you know, right now we're growing malt, oats, corn, rye, we've got triticale, we, you know, like... The, we've got heritage varieties of corn because they seem more appropriate to the to the elevation and also our hearts are tied to like heritage and heirloom varieties of things for flavor's sake and um, you know for taking a step back in history away from grains that have been modified for particular uses like pizza dough and high fructose corn syrup and back into the era where they were cultivated for flavor and food right so it was clear from from pretty early on that it was going to be a state from the standpoint of growing all the grains with the caveat that they could. It, you know, it took a few months to get to the point where it was like, okay, it's going to be everything. It's going to be the milling and the mashing and the malting and the distilling and the aging. And we're going to have to figure out what all of these facilities look like to make that viable. Cause you know, for, for perspective's sake, when I got to Santa Fe at 7,000 feet and high desert, a couple of those barrels that I cracked open in one of the rooms that wasn't, humidity and temperature controlled had like a 40% angel share in two years. Yeah. Which, you know, shits yeah. and shivers down your back. And, yeah. and Chris in particular with his love of single malt, Chris Bentley from the beginning was saying, you know, we're not going to have single malt for eight to 10 years. And there's no way you get to eight to 10 years in the desert without humidity <laughs> and temperature control. Yeah. I mean, and, and so while we're talking about it, the approach that Bentley takes on their climate control in the rickhouses yeah. 
is kind of unique. Talk about that a little bit because it's really cool. So, you know, my driving kind of concept around the way I handle things like this is we should always be appealing to tradition. We should always be taking the best of historical practices. But I'm a scientist and there are state of the art things that we can employ, state of the art techniques, state of the art equipment environments that we can use to, to improve upon or make our own play at or express ourselves. And so, you know, the Rick houses are basically three zones. And the idea there being we will have expressions of everything that we make that hit the classic markers of what Speyside single malt drinker wants, right? We'll have some, some of that like sweet, sherry, used bourbon goodness. So, you know, one of those environments is tied to, you know, the region of Belinda Lock and it kind of cycles in terms of humidity and temperature with that region. And, you know, there are barrels sitting in there we started putting away in volume in 2018. So, you know, there are barrels that have basically been aging in a Scotland environment since, call it August, August 2018 when we started up. We have another area because we're doing the traditional American whiskeys, the other American whiskeys that are, that are aging in an environment that's pretty akin to uh, Scotland, so Bardstown. And then we have a third environment that is, you know, a thing that I'm not going to talk too much about, but it's, it's the area where we're manipulating the environment to do things that you won't get in the other two environments. And I um, am only going to say this with negative modifiers before it. I don't like quote unquote rapid age talk, right? But the youngest whiskey we're going to put out will put, will, will come out at four years. And that four year whiskey will not taste like a four year whiskey. It'll taste like something that's been around longer. So, you know, that kind of covers the environment and sort of looking holistically at what we're talking about then, right? We're talking about 6,000 acres of arable land that Bentley can utilize. I think we have about 2,500 acres under cultivation. We live in the desert, so we can run into droughts, uh, any number of different things that can affect growing. So our silo farm holds two years worth of grain for the distillery in case we have a complete disaster year, which we've almost had a couple of times already, and we're in, you know, year two, three. Um, <laughs> although, you know, going back a little further, we, you know, we ran a pilot distillery beginning in 2015. So we have a few years under us of, you know, trying to grow grains and, and seeing what happens. We have the mill house or malt house or both where all that grain is being brought into smaller silos, which you know well, because you were, you started us up there, right? Matt Drew was our maltster uh, for about a year and a half and started all that equipment up, got it running, got us through startup. And you know, that facility has floor malting, auto malters, and the mills that we use to make the Betty Crocker cake mix that comes over to the distillery pre-milled in trucks. <laughs> and one building does bourbon rye, wheat whiskeys, uh, neutral spirit, gin, uh, it's where we formulate liqueurs. It's where we barrel and bottle. And the other building is the public house. Inside the silos, there's a single malt distillery uh, with the Forsyth stills and traditional, you know, uh, uh, mash tun and, and the uh, bar and, and tasting room. Next time, I'll pick things back up with Johnny and jump into some more of the philosophy behind Chris and Camille Bentley's vision and what the future holds for the brand.
As always, head over to asmwpodcast.com for show notes and links to anything you heard on today's episode, as well as links to my social feeds, a contact page for you to leave feedback, and sign up for the Single Malt Matters newsletter while you're there. All kinds of thank yous going out this time. Uh, as always, first of all, to Michael Kirkpatrick for his gift of music. He's got a lot going on, and you can learn more about that at his website, michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com. And I think the biggest thank you this week has to go out to you for listening. I hit a huge milestone this week, for me personally, uh, with over 2,300 downloads. And honestly, I had no idea what to expect when I started this. So thank you so much for showing me that this really does mean something and confirming that the American single malt whiskey cause is worth talking about. Again, thank you. Until next time.